I'll go psycho even if I don't move Some like the cool cause I'm so smooth Then something happens, feet start tapping You can't hold back when Rakim's rapping The man you've been waiting for, rougher than ever Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together Hello and welcome to episode 964 of Effectively Wild The daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus Presented by our Patreon supporters And the Play Index at BaseballReference.com I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN, who's been at ESPN Orientation the last couple of days, which is why this is the first podcast this week. Do you feel oriented now? Super oriented. And you've Excellent. been in you've been in Indio. Yes. Uh, at a concert, and uh, we uh, we just off air talked about that concert, uh, and I made a uh, Smash Mouth joke that uh, that now nobody can hear because I I can't uh, I'm incapable of repeating jokes. Yeah, they can just imagine it. It, it was, was a good one. It was, I had, it was pretty good. I watched, you know, I watched the All-Star video today, of all oh, things. Yeah. I did, yeah. My uh, my daughter is super into Kids Bop right now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, so we have been going through the uh, Kids Bop archives. And the Kids Bop greatest hits. First of all, Kids Bop, uh, I don't know if people know this, but it has evolved a lot over the years. I'm sure everybody knows it. But it, it has evolved a lot over the years. It used to basically be one grown-up singing the like lead vocals and then you just have kids like as a chorus screaming like exclamations in the background or like you know um punctuating certain words or maybe singing the chorus Uh and they just it was just this blend of of high-pitched kid voices Uh and it wasn't very good and now what they do is i guess they have like a cast for each album of like four kids who sing the songs in the style of the the musicians and honestly it's really good now like there are absolutely songs that i prefer the kids bop version <laughs> because the production is note for note i mean it is like the it is just a, a sheer ripoff of the production and then you have the vocals which are you know adequate they're fine they're basically you know they're not indistinguishable but they're super they're competent but then what you don't have usually is like Ludacris's terrible verse at the end <laughs> or like Dark Horse that Katy Perry song Dark Horse I hate that song uh but I realize now that I mostly hate it because Juicy J's, you know, 16 bars or whatever are just about the worst (laughs) rapping that's ever been done. And they just cut that. And it's much better. Anyway, the point is that the Kids Bop Greatest Hits, track one, track one on Kids Bop Greatest Hits is All Star by Smash Mouth. I mean, when you think about like 15 years of pop music, although I guess they probably put the greatest, the greatest is probably came out chronologically after like the third disc or something. <laughs> so maybe it's not that impressive, but still for a song. And so today we were, uh, we, I played the original for her, the video, I played the video. And what I always love about 90s videos is just how many of them are attached to some movie that you've like don't think about being attached <laughs> to the movie so like this one the video which i mean this is like a huge massive cultural touchstone song and yeah. like half the video is mystery men skits <laughs> uh and the, like i i always i always if, if i ever were just asked to write randomly i have always had in mind that the second post i would write in a random thing i would be like on 90s music videos and the movies that they were attached, like the sort of like discordant movies that they were attached to. So like Aaliyah's Are You That Somebody, which is like, I think one of the 10 greatest pop songs of the decade. And it's, you know, especially profound now because it came out just before her death. And it's really, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing song. And the video is like her dancing and Dr. Doolittle scenes are playing on the walls. <laughs> or uh, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers song, uh, Soul to Squeeze, has this mm. big Coneheads tie-in. Which, <laughs> like this song is just nothing Coneheadsy about it. Anyway, so this Smash Mouth. And, uh, and so then ever, for the last hour, I've been trying to figure out what the meteor men beg to differ even means. And so that's all. I just wanted to let you know that Smash Mouth has been a big part of my life today. Did she prefer the original or the Kids Bop? Didn't care. Didn't mm. care. Just great no matter who's singing it. <laughs> so uh, we're going to do emails. Our plan is to do one of our, our simulcast Patreon games on Friday night, the first game of the ALCS. So we're basically just going to talk during the baseball game. 
and I will send out the details to Patreon supporters in the next day or two. So basically, we have to save our material <laughs> for that because we are not Tom Verducci. We don't have excellent anecdotes from when we talked to the third base coach just before the game. So we have to save our banter for uh, those three hours of talking that we're going to do for the uh, Blue Jays-Indians game. So we're going to take some emails now, and we'll see how that goes. So you have an email you want to make up. Yeah, as I, uh, I'll just make it up right here. Okay. Um, I was the other day. The other day, I was watching uh, Vladimir Putin play hockey against uh-huh. uh, NHL players. Uh, so this was for his birthday last year. He got to play in a hockey game against a bunch of you know Russian NHL players, and there was a big crowd and so on. And he scored seven goals, and because that's that's what you do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he scored seven goals. They awarded him a, a giant MVP trophy, etc. So my question to you guys is, if you had the chance to face a major league pitcher, to, to really face major league pitching, you go out there and, um, you know, Kershaw or, you know, maybe a league, maybe Giovanni Gallardo, I don't know, is willing to pitch to you uh, f- for as long as you want and for as real as you want. How would you want to be pitched? Would you rather they let you hit seven home runs or, you know, seven singles? Like, would you rather they lay in 65 mile an hour BP and then you could tell everybody, yeah, I went yard off Giovanni Gallardo or whatever. Like, would you rather get the MVP trophy at the end of it? Or would you rather he throw 94 and you would know what it's like, but you would look, I mean, you would just, all of your weaknesses would be laid bare. You might conceivably uh, be in a hospital if a ball hit you. Uh, and you'd be terrified. It'd be terrifying, terrifying. Uh, yes. Or or is there somewhere in the middle that you would like to, to be? I think I would want a few pitches at real speed. I would want him to throw his whole arsenal, basically. Show me every pitch that you have, just so I can see what that actually looks like. And embarrass myself, yes, but it would mainly be an information-gathering mission. And then I might ask him to just dial it back to whatever degree I would need him to dial it back to in order to have some sort of realistic chance of hitting the ball. What do you I suppose mean, that is? Probably like uh, <laughs> 30% of of his, I don't, so I don't know. 30, so, so 27 <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, well, not that exactly. I'm trying to You're saying it. a standard deviation away yeah, from the mean. Yeah, right, yeah. So I'd, I'd need him to, I mean, I don't know. I'd need him to throw like it was a batting cage or something, and he was just throwing straight cheese. So if he did that, then, you know, I could say I did that, I guess. <laughs> not that it would be that great an accomplishment if he's clearly yeah. not trying. Would you even say that you did that? Like, it seems like yeah, if, I, I, if I hit BP fastballs off of, I mean, true BP, like, junk, like if he were letting me hit slow fastballs, I don't think I would tell anybody. Like, I maybe would tell them I got to experience it, yeah. but I would have, I would walk it back so far before I even started telling the story. Yeah, it's not something you can brag about if he's just lobbing it in there. He's just, right. it, it happens to be him. It could be anyone it could else be lobbing anybody. it, it in there. Be, the, right, it could yeah. be you know, Riley Breckenridge could throw you, <laughs> right. you know, solid 78 mile an hour straight fastballs if he, you know, yeah. if he were friends right. with you. So it would be more valuable really to have him go 100% for as long as he's willing to go just to gain more information. Would I ever even come close to making contact if I were facing a full strength major league pitcher? Could I bunt against that guy? Would I even be able to stand in the batter's box without wetting my pants? It would be a a valuable research exercise. So really, I think it would probably be best to actually face the the guy pitching at 100%. Just to be clear, that was not a totally random Riley Breckenridge reference. He, uh, I remember it just flashed into my memory before I said it, that like six years ago, there was some angel who needed to take BP in the offseason. And uh, mm. so Riley went out and pitched to him. Yeah. He, he was the local guy. Anyway, I, how much would, would the answer change if there were um, 16,000 of your uh, loyal subjects in the, uh, in the crowd? Or if there were, I mean, would, would it change if there was a crowd? 
Well, I'd enjoy it even less than I would have otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) And this is like a a nightmare to begin with. I think uh, Jeff tweeted something about nothing scares him more than the idea of just standing in the batter's box for one Noah Syndergaard pitch. It would be just terrifying to do that. So the first 30 or so pitches that where I sat behind the cage uh, or stood up against the cage during spring training BP with the stompers with the stompers Uh were scary to me. They, the the sound was scary to me. I was behind, I was behind a net and they were throwing 80 mile an hour BP fastballs and and just Uh hitting them. And that was, that made me uncomfortable. I wouldn't say scary, but it made me uncomfortable. Yeah. So yeah, I would not want to do this. So if I, if I had a crowd of spectators, I don't know that that would change anything. I think uh, I would be self-deprecating about it and be open about the fact that I was about to embarrass myself and hopefully the crowd would be on my side. So I think that would be all right. I think the answer for me would be, it would slightly depend on whether this was a game situation where I was only going to get three or four pitches per at bat and only three or four at bats, or whether I was going to get, um, you know, an hour of uh, dedicated attention to me. Uh-huh. But I think with the latter scenario, where maybe say I get, uh, you know, even 20 minutes, I think that like you, I would say, okay, show me all of them first, snap off your best, uh, you know, slider. And yeah. then once I've seen all of them, I would say, all right, all fastballs now. I don't want to have to guess. So all, and I don't want to. Good fastballs. Though. But good, all, yeah, 100% fastballs. I want, I want the real cheese. And then mixed in there, I might say, you're welcome to mix in other pitches, but let me know ahead of time. Because uh-huh. I really don't want to be, I don't, if a fastball is coming at my face, I want to know that that is that I like I don't have to prove how cool I am by hanging in on the breaking ball. Yeah. And then be but it's not a breaking ball, it's a fastball. Uh-huh. Uh so but I think I would I think I would want to see the real stuff pretty much only. Now, if it were in a fake game situation and I had to hit, I might say, all right, uh, you know, high 80s. If you can if you can hit high 80s, you know, if you can sort of sit at the high 80s, give me that instead of the 94. Yeah, I'd probably ask him not to hurt me. Just to be very careful about not hurting me. I don't actually. <laughs> so. I don't. I don't actually think I would hit high eighties any more than I would hit mid mid nineties. By the way, uh-huh. but I don't think that I would want to try low eighties. I I don't think that that would give me the experience I was going for. To me, that would be a little too much like parachuting in uh you know in in virtual reality instead of actual parachuting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's take a question from Ryan who says, Hey guys, I was doing the dishes when I was listening to episode 962 where you were discussing the fraud manager. Loved the answer. That said, while doing those dishes, I misheard the question and thought it was if a manager from the 1940s was the beginning of the question. So my question is, if a manager from the 1940s was brought forward in time and made the manager of a modern MLB or AAA, let's say MLB team, how well would they do? Let's take the technology out of the question, if possible, and just think about managerial decision-making and actions. Would they be mostly fine? Ned Yost learned right. Would it be a total disaster? How many wins would it cost? Also, what if it was a robot program to react like a 1940s manager and it couldn't learn? (laughs) Obviously much worse, but how bad? So if it's a 1940s manager who is totally stuck in his ways, I guess, how bad would he be? And if it were just average 1940s manager, how bad would he be? Well, it's interesting because let's say that let's think of a strategy and we'll set for the premise of this question that this is a strategy that we consider very important and uh, crucial to winning. So let's say that that strategy is uh, not bunting to, uh, you know, a runner over to third uh, after a leadoff double in the first inning. So you've got you're you're the GM and you go to your manager or your whoever and you go to the manager and you go, you shouldn't do this. Look at this run expectancy table. That manager modern day manager is like, get out of here. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm a modern day manager. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, but if you go to the 1940s manager and you go, oh, well, this is how we do it now. Uh, uh-huh. I don't, I wonder if he'd go, oh, okay. And just like, it would seem futuristic. Like, I don't imagine, I bet you that if you, I don't know exactly the timeline of vaccine introductions, <laughs> but I would guess that if you took a thousand people from 1940, transported them here, sent them to a doctor and said, here's your MMR shot, all a thousand be like, thank you, doctor, futuristic doctor. This is awesome. It is the future after all. Which is uh, better than if the you do it, percentage if you do it right. of 2016 people. Exactly. There's some percentage <laughs> yeah. of 2016ers who would not. 
uh, and yeah. who don't who don't realize that they have a futuristic doctor. Like they don't yeah. realize that that doctor is in somebody else's future. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just a dude in the present, uh, and you you know pick flaws in your peers. So um, I think that I would speculate that the 1940s manager would would totally take your word for whatever you said. The G, I think that this is how we do it now would be a pretty pretty persuasive argument, maybe uh-huh. even to a fault, probably. But I think that you'd get better reaction from the 1940s manager. And I don't think there's anything uh, fundamental about a 1940s human that is uh, that you know that would otherwise or a 1940s brain that would otherwise be. In inferior or, or a liability i think they're basically nope. the same so i would t- i might take a uh, <laughs> pliable 1940s manager <laughs> okay so what if what if it's a, a set in his ways 1940s manager and he comes in and and he is not cowed by all the technology and the uh non-baggy uniforms and he is just a, a representative of his era and he's going to cling to the old ways no matter what how how much how much does he well constitute? no matter what unless he cha- unless he comes to a conclusion on his own so I would guess that the yeah. first couple weeks he might do a lot of funny things and after two or three weeks he'd be pretty orthodox I don't think uh-huh. that I don't think that he would have his starters going complete games every day beyond the first couple weeks I think at a certain point he would either feel silly or he would see his team getting beat uh, uh-huh. and think that those guys actually have have a pretty good idea I'm going to try that idea too. Uh, yeah. So, and of course, right. any uh, the question is, how long would it take before he was managing to the save? <laughs> yeah. Well, right. He's not going to know what to do with this giant bullpen. He's been gifted. He's going to wonder where his bench is, and uh, I guess he'll <laughs> figure it out pretty quickly because. If he does try to throw his starters into the ninth every day, they're going to get tired and they're going to start getting shelled. And maybe he'll realize that they're not conditioned the way the old guys do. Or he might just realize, oh, these guys are throwing really hard. (laughs) These guys are all really good at baseball. These are better than the players I had before. So he might understand that, oh, this is like a max effort game now. I can't do what I did anymore. But yeah, I mean, the biggest problem, of course, I, I think, is that he's going to have a tough time relating to the players, right? He's he's not going to have any of the same cultural touchstones that they have. He's going to be way out of touch. He's going to say some very off-color comments in the clubhouse. He's Disagree. Want... Disagree. No? I, think if gonna... he, I think you're imagining a guy... I think right now what you're imagining is actually your grandfather, as as you know your grandfather. Like you're imagine well, you're like my grandfather was alive in the forties and he's ninety-six. And that guy <laughs> would have a hard time relating to players say. But if you're talking about a, a manager of you know median managerial age, I think uh-huh. they'd get a kick out of it. I think it would be like I I'd, I think it'd be super cool to have a friend from the forties. And I mean it was it doesn't seem to be a problem for Captain America. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, I don't. I still think I would. Uh, you really think that the players are going to be like he doesn't know the history of reggaeton? I can't, you know, like relate to him. Like he's just a <laughs> he's just a he's just another human being who like knows ragtime or something. <laughs> I don't know. That seems <laughs> fine to me. It seems. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's going to be like demanding that they put Tommy Dorsey on the the clubhouse stereo <laughs> or anything. But I, you know, he's he's not going to. I, well, put it this way, if I were running the team and this guy were giving press conferences, I would want my media relations person standing by all the time, just ready to cut it short if he starts veering into some uh, territory that was acceptable in the 40s and is not acceptable now. But yeah, I mean, just on a day-to-day relating to players basis, it might not be all that different. I don't know how much the the baseball man patois has actually changed that much in, you know, 70 years or so. So I think you're right. It, it might be a little bit better, but he'd, he'd have a hard time adjusting to the way that rosters are constructed, the way guys are used to being used. He's not going to be bringing in relievers for matchups or anything, and that's the way that these guys are used. So there might be some sort of just team intervention where they just sit him down and say, hey, this is how we play baseball now. This is how we've always played baseball. You have to use us something close to this way or we won't know what to do. Or uh, I don't know, maybe it'll be a triumph and he'll bring back the four-man rotation and he'll just have his good pitchers pitching all the time and he'll 
send his relievers down to AAA and he'll call up some bench bats and he'll be platooning and pinch hitting. I don't know. Maybe he'll actually bring back some some things that have fallen out of style but were actually good. Obviously, he's going to be bunting all the time. You know, all the all the strategies that have fallen out of favor now, intentional walks and sacrificing and pitch outs and all of that. He'll be doing that a lot, at least at first. But, you know, teams did that for many, many years and there were still really good baseball teams. Of course, they were competing against teams that were also doing that. But I don't think that would make a good team into a bad team. It it would hurt a little bit. Yeah. So it is my position that, as as stated, that the, the what you're describing is how it would work uh, at the beginning and that he would adapt on his own pretty quickly to most of this stuff. And I would say that uh, by two weeks, he would be close to indistinguishable. Do you accept the premise? And if so, what timeline do you give him for his general transformation where he is, you know, 96% baseball man? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it depends on the guy's personality. If he's just uh, extremely stubborn or he's just so disoriented by his trip to the future that he's just clinging to his old ways, then maybe he just hangs on to it until you fire him. But if he's just an average guy, then I agree. I mean, he'd be talking to people all the time. Maybe he would, uh, you know, go find some of his former players from the 1940s who are, you know, 80 or 90 now and until uh, catch I could give up him, on... I could give him a phone number for one. <laughs> yeah. He could call up Ned Garver, find out how baseball has changed over the last 60 years or so. And so, you know, he could he could talk to people who've been around the whole time that he skipped past and find out how that happened exactly. And you could catch him up on baseball history. And and yeah, I mean, it's just that the pressure from your players would be pretty extreme all the time. If you're doing crazy stuff, you don't even have your 1940s coaching staff with you, presumably in this scenario, which if you did, that would at least give you some backup, some people on your side. But if you're alone you'd have to be just extremely stubborn to stick it out very long in the face of pressure from your ownership and your GM and your players and the media and everyone. So I agree that most people would conform pretty quickly. So I don't, he'd probably still bunt more than the typical manager bunts, maybe up until even the end of the season, if it's a full season. But I don't think he's going to be, I, you know, I, it would take some time, I think, for him to adjust to bullpen management. I mean, that's just such a different animal than it was then where your bullpen was just, you know, with the exception of a couple guys, it was just, you didn't use it unless you had to really. And the guys out there were just kind of stuck there because they couldn't start and it was totally different. So rotation patterns were somewhat different. So it would take some time, but yeah, I mean, after a, a month or so, I think he probably looks pretty similar just because the pressure would be unbearable if he were to persist. It'd be interesting to know how many of his lineup or his uh, strategic decisions would be swayed by his view his view of the athleticism of the players. So like as it is right now, pitchers throw these incredible sliders and and hitters hit them incredibly far still because the sliders are amazing and the hitters are amazing. And I wonder if instead of seeing that there's like a relative equilibrium that has maintained itself, you know, relatively, although different in certain ways and different in certain styles. But like if you were, you know, if you're coming from an era where you call for six tenths of a sacrifice bunt a game and you go, uh, you, you bring it here. I wonder if you would just go, there's no way I'm bunting with that guy. He is so big and strong. Like he's just so much stronger than anybody I ever saw. And the same way you, if you wouldn't ever take a starting pitcher out, cause you're like, he's throwing 96. It's yeah. the seventh inning. He's throwing 96. Like he's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't know. Pretty fun email episode so far. <laughs> yeah. Pretty good. All right. Question from Taylor. What about having an earpiece inside the catcher's ear to tell him information for each batter coming to the plate like the NFL does with quarterbacks? You get a limited amount of time to speak to the catcher like a play clock in football. You already see catchers with armbands, so I'm wondering what kinds of effects the earpiece might have on gameplay and strategy. I'm trying to remember our lasers uh, conversation, but as I think as I recall, you are uh, pro unrestricted use of technology in, in gameplay, right? 
generally yes although i'm also pro players having to oh were you the opposite maybe well in that specific conversation i was i was i was against laser rangefinders for outfielder positioning in game because i like the idea of players having to figure that out on their own or coaching staffs having to direct the players in real time i don't it just it seems like that's strategy that's part of the game it's something that teams can use to differentiate themselves from other teams and that I like the idea of them having to kind of live or die with whether their players and coaches are good at those things. So I I like the idea of leaving it in their hands. And I guess this is similar. As Taylor alludes to, we already are at a point where catchers are taking things onto the field with them, just like outfielders are. You, you've seen the Dodgers outfielders, you know, take a index card out of their back pocket and say oh for this hitter i stand here so that's not really all that different and for catchers like david ross has his armband where he presumably has some sort of you know tips for for every hitter who's coming up and some sort of scouting report or what to throw him in certain counts and so it's not really all that different from having an earpiece and having someone just say that information to david ross instead of writing it on an armband and then attaching it to him (laughs) so or i mean there's a bunch of managers with a bunch of catchers uh, in a bunch of situations and on a bunch of teams that even, you know, they call pitches or they uh-huh. uh, direct the base running. What do, what do you call that? Suppression techniques. I, <laughs> they call pickoffs. Suppression techniques. It's snappy. That uh, might catch on. Yeah. And so, um, so it's not like there's, it's not like they put up a, uh, a dating game wall between the catcher and the dugout as it is uh-huh. you're you're yeah. allowed to communicate so an earpiece would be um, depending on who's on the other side of that earpiece would be really no different the question is who is on the other side of that earpiece and whether right. you, whether you think that um the field staff uh should have uh, pretty much open communication with as many people in the organization as you want to in real time and uh, to go along with that as much access to information supercomputers, tape, mm-hmm. and so on, as you want yeah. them to. But sure seems fine to me. I think what you should, you could even, somebody asked a question a long time ago about whether umpires would benefit from knowing what the pitch was before it yeah. comes in. Right. And uh, so if you were going to, you could give the umpire an earpiece too. And uh-huh. uh, and then he could always know and not get fooled by, by the pitch. Although I don't know how big a problem that is as it is. Uh, but... As long as it's not slowing anything down, and if it is a unobtrusive way to help athletes reach higher levels, I think that that's generally philosophically consistent with what we like to see in baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it yeah. change? Would it have much effect on gameplay or strategy, or would it mostly just be two percent better than all the same things that they do right now? Yeah, I think it depends on, as you said, who is on the other end of the earpiece. So I think if you were to have this system set up, I would bet that maybe you'd, this is when we'd finally see like a, you know, stat head kind of person in a coaching role in the dugout in uniform, just because that information would be very valuable and you wouldn't, I mean, you could, you could have someone just write it down, put it in a binder and then just have a coach read it to you if you wanted. So so yeah, if this were a, a direct pipeline to the front office person with the supercomputer or something, that might change the balance of power a little bit and shift it even more toward the defense and, and pitching. But I, if it were just you know talking to the bench coach or the pitching coach or something about what the scouting report says, then that probably wouldn't change anything we see on the field dramatically. I wonder if you would see uh, pitching coaches not going to the mound as much because they could just give their instructions, detailed instructions to the catcher, and then the catcher could go out to the mound and not burn a visit. So uh-huh. I wonder if the lack of pitching the, uh, lack of pitching coach visits to the mound would actually slow things down because now a pitching coach could essentially by proxy have as many visits to the mound as he wants and uh, could send the catcher out, you know, seven times in an inning or whether it would slightly speed it up by removing the full pitcher walk to the mound. Probably not the latter. Yeah. I could see the former. I could see it slowing things down. Uh If you give people more complicated, more information, they're 
probably going to you know to use it in some way and uh it maybe takes it might take time to use that information there might be more slowdowns more catchers kind of stalling for two seconds while they're uh, listening to somebody yeah there's always some kind of unintended consequence like with the umpires example you mentioned i wonder whether that would bias an umpire so if he knows that a slider is coming or something he's already thinking oh this is less likely to be a strike it's going to be out of the zone Uh. so you know maybe if it's a borderline pitch he's thinking oh this is a slider so odds are it was out of the zone maybe that Mm. biases him in a way you wouldn't want him to be biased it's a great point all right so play index sure um so madison bumgarner gave up a home run to jake arietta and uh Something clicked in me where I thought, I bet Madison Bumgarner's allowed more home runs to pitchers than any other pitcher. And I don't know why I thought that, but I just, I thought, I bet that's true. And uh, then I went and I looked it up, and uh, Madison Bumgarner had never allowed a home run to a pitcher. So yeah. I, it's just completely wrong. Uh, and so I wanted to see who had allowed the most home runs to pitchers. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, the, ac- the answer among active players is Madison Bumgarner's teammate, Matt Kane, who mm-hmm. has allowed four. Uh, and I actually first limited the search to during Bumgarner's career, and Kane was, you know, still obviously still at first with four. And uh, that's sort of notable because Matt Kane hasn't pitched that many innings during Bumgarner's career. Uh, I mean, he has, but there's others who have pitched more. I guess he's pitched a lot. But anyway, that's not enough for a play index. So, so I uh, then went to see who had allowed the most home runs to pitchers ever, and uh, the, for the career, it's I think Mickey Lolich. That's not that interesting. But I stumbled into one of uh, I think one of the most uh, striking I don't know to me striking records that I've ever heard of, <laughs> and I just heard of it today. Uh, so I went to the single season to the single season home run record or I guess home runs allowed to pitchers record. And what it's five. So Matt Kane has allowed four in his entire career. He is the active leader uh, for career home runs allowed to pitchers uh, with four. And this guy allowed five in a single season. Uh, mm-hmm. But what's especially interesting about it, besides that, which I think is pretty interesting on its own, is that uh, this guy, who ha- I'll just tell you, his name is Bill Hands. And... <laughs> What? <laughs> what? His, his name is a body part. All right. Uh, <laughs> so Bill Hands allowed five home runs in a season in which he was A, quite good. He had a 2.89 ERA. Uh, the next year, he won 20 games. The year after that, he won 18 games. Uh, he was good at pitching, and he was even good the year that he managed to somehow allow five home runs to pitchers. But what's especially impressive about Bill Hands allowing five home runs to pitchers in a season is that he did it in 1968, the huh. year the year of the pitcher, the year that Bob Gibson allowed five runs all year to the entire league, the year that the home run rate was the second lowest in post-integration history, where home runs were hit at roughly half, half the rate that they were hit this year in the majors, in somehow in the year of the pitcher where it is just nothing but insane pitching records that are so insane that they devalue the entire thing. This guy somehow managed to allow five home runs to pitchers, uh, and uh, they were all pretty important home runs. Actually, one wasn't that important. I think he was down 4 nothing and he gave up a solo shot in like the second inning. But the other four were all pretty important. Two of them tied the game. One of them uh, gave the other team the lead. And the fourth one cut a uh, lead uh, to one. So I have a hypothesis for this. Bill Hands is, besides this fun record, is one of the very worst hitters of all time. Uh, By OPS, he is the 14th worst hitter uh, of all time among pitchers. Out of, like, you know, thousands of pitchers, right? I set a, a reasonably high plate appearance minimum, so maybe it's maybe it's only many hundreds. But uh, 14th worst uh, by slugging percentage, he's the fifth worst ever. But there's one thing that the 14th worst hitting pitcher of all time and the fifth worst slugging pitcher of all time did pretty well, 
which is he drew a lot of walks. He had a better walk rate in his career. And this is in an era where there wasn't even that much walking, but this was a 2.82. So in fact, this was in an era where the lowest rate of walks per game in history happened. And, uh, but he walked, uh, more in his career, more often, more frequently in his career than Adrian Beltre, uh, Robinson Cano, uh, Manny Machado, Daniel Murphy, Xander Bogarts, Jose Altuve, a bunch of really good hitters. So he had an absolute deficiency as a hitter and also a strategy that created some value to him, which was presumably never, ever, ever swing. And maybe Bill Hands just projected and thought that everybody was like him. Couldn't hit, didn't want to. And so he would throw fastballs right down the middle, and uh, and they would get hit a long ways. He uh, he led the league in, uh, he had the lowest walk rate in baseball that year at just 1.3 walks per nine. Uh, so he was a guy who was just pumping fastballs in, I guess, or pumping so strikes like in. Josh Tomlin. I, I is totally, he is totally the job. I mean, I was wondering whether I would find a transition <laughs> to say Josh Tomlin's name. So, uh, so that's how it happened. I like that it happened. I don't know if it'll ever be beat, but uh, if it is, it'll almost certainly be in a context where it makes a lot more sense uh, for uh-huh. a pitcher to give up five home runs to other pitchers. Um, and uh, one last small detail in this. Hands slugging percentage, which is the first, uh, the fifth worst ever. He had uh, his isolated powers is also down around that that line. In 500 plus plate appearances in his career, he uh, he had six doubles, no triples, no home runs. But uh, even better, even topping him, Barry Zito in his entire career, 418 plate appearances, never had an extra base hit. He has a <laughs> isolated power of zero. After 400 plate appearances, which is itself a pretty amazing fun fact, <laughs> if you ask me. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, he has the advantage over modern-day pitchers of the fact that he threw almost 260 innings that year. So he, Right. If he, he was pitching more innings, and his opponents were also pitching more innings. So he was facing more pitchers. Yes, right. There was no DH, of course, and and this was after the schedule expanded to its current length. So he was facing pitchers twice as often or maybe more than twice as often because pitchers were probably staying in games later. So Yeah, can I I, I want to just put uh, – I, I just remembered I have a bow for this story. Sure. Uh, he faced – by the way, he faced 74 pitchers that year. Uh-huh. So I don't know what normal is, but it's probably something like 60 these days, two a game maybe, two a yeah. game for 30 starts, a little less than two a game for 34 starts, something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's not that big a difference. All right, so Bill Hands – uh, made you laugh um, because his name is Bill Hands. Uh, there was one other pitcher who I thought had a, a, a argument for being the most home run to pitcher prone pitcher ever. And this is a guy who allowed only four in his career, but he did it in just 400 innings, which is a lot of home runs for not a lot of innings. Like if you look at the career home run allowed list and you just scroll down uh, the innings involved, uh, this one jumps out at you. And his name is... Rich Hand. <laughs> that's the same body part, but singular. <laughs> yeah. There you Pretty go. Good. All right. All right. His nickname was Froggy. Uh, he Bill Hand's nickname was? Yeah. Really, really, really slim Wikipedia page. I was uh, surprised yeah. for a guy who had 110 wins. You normally get more than that. Uh-huh. Apparently, he was nicknamed Froggy because his spare pitching motion reminded his teammates of Don Larson's no-wind-up style. So because Larson was known as Big Froggy, hands became Little Froggy, and then, I guess, just Froggy. Huh. Why is, <laughs> okay. wait, wait a minute, though. Why Why is Don Larson Big yeah. Froggy? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Ah, okay. So this is from uh, another source. This is from a, a Peter Gollenbach book. Froggy, his teammates called Hans Froggy because he threw with the same delivery as the Yankees' Don Larson, who loved to go frog hunting. (laughs) 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 Okay, I guess that makes sense. All right, so you can use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index. All right, Joe asked... 
In a confused attempt to shorten games and appeal to the fabled millennial demographic, Major League Baseball eliminates pitchers and replaces them with pitching machines. These machines are still located on the pitcher's mound. They throw four-seam fastballs that are guaranteed to be in the strike zone, although they can be anywhere in the zone. How fast would the pitches have to be in order to generate similar levels of offense to what we see today? I would and, guess, by the way, I would guess that within, I'll, I'll say, you know, 75 years, I would put the chances of a pitching machine driven sport, uh, you know, replacing pitchers at maybe six or 7%. Like, I, I think uh-huh. it is a non zero percent chance that uh-huh. it'll happen. And maybe even, it might even be that there's not even a, a real a real field it might be completely it might be completely virtual within 100 <laughs> just saying yeah yeah so, sure right. well so we once talked about and Jeff, before we, you yell at me i just said there's a 93 percent chance that it's not going to happen so <laughs> i cool it it's i'm saying it's probably not but yeah yeah <laughs> so we once answered an email from someone who asked i think if there was like a pitching machine or a robot that could throw like the best pitches in baseball are just any pitch it could throw, you know, it, whoever's Cole Hamels' changeup and Roldis Chapman's fastball and, you know, whatever. It can throw the best pitches, but it can only throw one per plate appearance or one per at bat. And after that, it has to throw the same pitch every time. And we basically said that this fake pitcher would get crushed because basically the idea was that the unpredictability of pitching is extremely important. And so even if this person threw, you know, Mariano Rivera's cutter every time or Zach Britton's sinker every time, if it was in the same location and the same speed and everything, it would be just easy to beat up on this pitcher because A, if it was outside the strike zone, you could just always take it. And if it wasn't, you would just know what was coming. So this is sort of similar. This is always a fastball, and it's always in the strike zone, so you know what's coming, and there's no guesswork. So the question is just, I guess, at what point does the fastball get so fast that you can't hit it no matter what, no, even if you know it's coming, even if you start your swing early. I mean, there was there's that video of like a Japanese hitter swinging yeah. at like a 200-mile-per-hour pitch or something. Tsuyoshi Shinjo. Oh, was it Jinjo? Yeah. yeah. So, and I, so, yeah, uh, and I think I want to say it was like a, I want to say it was like 155 miles an hour. Yeah, it was very, very fast. So, uh, and how did he do? I don't remember how he, he did. He eventually timed it, and I think he popped a couple up or something like that. Yeah. So if, it was if really it's... hard. It was edited like a Japanese game show, and it was very, yes. <laughs> very hard to follow. Right. Yeah. So, so if it's that fast, then I think you're you're in trouble anyway. So, I mean, if it's like, say it's uh, 110 miles per hour, so it's, you know, five miles per hour faster than anyone has ever thrown in a game, but you know it's coming and it's always a strike. Are we, so we're, uh, we're, so we're just starting, we're just moving we're going to tick up one, uh, a little bit at a time. 110 is your first, uh, is your first volley. You can't even start with Syndergaard because they're not, first of all, he's not throwing in the strike zone every time. Second of all, he's got multiple pitches. And so there's not anywhere close to a test of this. But also, I mean, some some portion of the math here is that walks would be completely eliminated. And uh-huh. if you imagine a baseball with, with no walks, uh, offense is going to just absolutely plummet. So that's an issue. Yeah, that's true. But uh, I, don't, I mean, how, how effective would someone with one of the best fastballs in baseball be if you took away all of his other pitches? If he can uh, work all four corners... Is it, Remind me, the premise of this question is that you can pinpoint it? Uh, I guess so. I don't, I mean, if it's a pitching machine, I don't know oh, how, although, how, wait, that, he said, how okay, that would so work. They're guaranteed, guaranteed to be in the strike zone, although they, they can be anywhere in the zone. So this presumes yeah. that the pitching, the pitching machine is basically bowling with, uh, with uh, you know, the, those gutter filler pads. Uh-huh. But the location is more or less randomized within the... So you you wouldn't be you you couldn't just dot all four corners in whatever order you want. You'd be throwing right. some mistakes. I don't have a great way of thinking through this. I would say that at 106, if you knew it was a fastball but you didn't know the location, I'm going that they'd hit it. Yeah, that they'd hit it pretty well. I think so too. All right, so 110. You know it's a fastball every time. You time it perfectly every time but you don't know location. I think they hit it. 
Yeah. I, I think, think so, so there's basically four runs a game scored, 4.4 runs a game scored right now. Take out the walks, that plummets, but add the predictability of the pitching machine, maybe it goes up. Does it go up enough to get you back to 4.4? Hmm. Be a lot of home runs. Yeah, right. I know. I think I'm going to push it. I'm going to say yes. Okay. All right. 112. I... <laughs> Hang on, I'm imagining this pitch. <laughs> <laughs> that is fast. Yeah. That is fast. fast. Yeah, now, wow. Puts it in perspective. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say no. I think that if you get a pitching machine at 110 that throws only strikes, only fastballs for only strikes... Uh, boy, I'm about to say something that really seems crazy. Uh, then it makes me want to go down. I was going to say, if you have a pitching machine that only throws strikes at 112 miles an hour, I think it would be a little better than the league average pitcher. That sounds nuts. If you throw, if you have a pitching machine that only throws strikes at 106 miles an hour, I'm now saying no. I'm I'm going back. I'm going back. <laughs> I'm now okay. going down to 104. I'm setting, if I want to have 4.4 runs a game, not even 104, 10, yeah, 10, assuming there's average movement on it, that it is neither the, a great sinker nor a uh, Nathan Eovaldi fastball, uh, mm-hmm. I am going to say 103. Oh, man, even that, the, <laughs> the league average pitcher is only as good or is as good as a, as a machine that throws strikes Every single time at 103 miles an hour. Man, I was so far off when I first started on this. I'm going down to 101. <laughs> okay. What about you? Are you still at 110? Uh, well, I said no at 110, right? You said uh, no at 110, yes at 106. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick with that. I just don't know if I know that much about millennials if this would appeal to them. <laughs> no. Is this like our millennials? Just, yeah, it doesn't really seem consistent with what millennials are into. <laughs> no. Okay, so uh, we will end there. I've got a couple other good questions that uh, I'd like to answer, but maybe we'll answer them during our Patreon broadcast. I guess we'll be back before then with another episode, probably. <laughs> so. While we were talking, I found an interview with Bill Hands from 2010. He is uh, still with us, he's 76, but this is a story from 2010, and he is talking about, let's see, the story says, he didn't blow away hitters, but he threw strikes. His 1968 strikeout-to-walk ratio was 4.11. This story does not mention his home runs to pitchers record. And Hands wasn't afraid to throw one that a hitter might launch out of the yard. My father always talked about Frankie Frisch, who said how walks can kill you. He said of the Hall of Fame second baseman and manager of three teams. So whenever I got to three and one, I said, here it is. <laughs> so that's how it happened. You want to call him? Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's call him. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. Here goes. I'm dialing. Hello. Hi, Bill. My name is Sam Miller. I'm a baseball writer with ESPN. And uh, my friend Ben Lindbergh, who's also a baseball writer, is here with me. Say hi, Ben. Mm -hmm. Hi, Bill. Hello. Uh, We're doing a baseball podcast together right now. And we just were talking about you because we stumbled upon a sort of an odd, I guess you could call it a record, but it's sort of an odd part of of your career. And, And we wanted to ask you about it. Do you have a minute? Sure. All right. It's a, I'm, I'm going to prepare you. It is a very odd record. And we know that like, uh, (laughs) I don't, you might not want to be reminded of this, but uh, we discovered that in 1968, when you allowed uh, five home runs to opposing pitchers, that that is a all time record. And we Uh, were amazed because of what a great pitcher you were at at that point in your career. And okay. I wasn't uh, aware of that. I thought you were going to tell me about my 14 consecutive strikeouts. (laughs) <laughs> tell us, wait a minute, tell us about that. I will. Uh, at one point, I struck out 14 consecutive times in between sacrifice bunts. My old story was that I broke Sandy Koufax's record of 13. <laughs> well, believe it or not, the conversation we were having about the home runs allowed yeah. the pitchers led us to talking about what you were like as a hitter. So I, I want to ask you about okay. that as well. But do, I want to know if you had a philosophy when you were facing an opposing pitcher. Well, in 1968, when uh, I had an elbow problem, and it actually hurt me to swing the bat, and that is why I was as poor as I was. I was never a good hitter, but the year that I set that strikeout record was the year that it, it 
for whatever reason, it didn't hurt me to throw the ball. It hurt me to swing the bat. So, and so what can you. I say? You so you say you were never a particularly good hitter. You did yeah. draw a lot. You did draw a lot of walks, though, okay. especially okay. for a pitcher. So okay. did was that kind of intentional? Was that your um, strategy when you went up there? Um, well, my strategy was to get on any way I could, and uh, if they were going to walk me and they thought I was going to, you know, smack one, uh, maybe they pitched around me a little bit. But that's really not true. I'm always amazed at how often pitchers do swing especially nowadays because pitchers are even worse hitters than they were in your day. And when they're, you know, ahead 2-0 in the count or 3-1, you still see them swing. And it, it just sort of blows my mind that they would be yeah, trying to. Yeah, the guy throw uh, two strikes, right? Yeah, it, it always, yeah. it seems like they should. Um, sure. But, uh, <laughs> and you did. So, well, I, I was going to ask, you were traded from the Cubs. You were traded to an AL team just in time for the DH, the first year of the DH. So you didn't have to hit anymore at that point. So that is correct. Were you relieved <laughs> to to uh, move over there and, and not have to no, hit anymore? not really. Uh, not really. Um, uh, even later on, I always liked the brand of the National League better. Uh-huh. I, I didn't like the DH. I thought it, it basically extended careers for guys that couldn't play in the field. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true even with guys like as good as he is at David Ortiz you know liability in the field but a great hitter mm-hmm. did you like hitting um I think if I'd have been better at it I would have liked it we had a lot of fun you know pitchers always took batting practice and we had a lot of fun doing that did you ever stop being uh I would be terrified if I were up there and I saw it you know 94 coming at me did you ever stop feeling that sort of worry when you were up there no, I don't think I ever thought about it. I mean, uh, I always kind of looked for the fastball as a hitter. And, uh, you know, if they threw a breaking ball, I was dead. Uh-huh. And so it, you didn't go up there feeling like uh, your life was in, <laughs> was in danger every time someone let go of the ball? No, I never considered that. Were you a good hitter when you were um, growing up? Were you always a, a great hitter as a little leaguer and, and in high school? I would, I would say uh, not a great hitter, decent. <laughs> Uh, so when you're on the mound, when you're the pitcher, and the opposing pitcher comes up to the plate, what are you thinking of uh, as far as how you pitch him, how you go after him? And do you think it was any different than what every other pitcher was thinking in that situation? Well, obviously, there's better hitting pitchers than others, mm-hmm. um, and you would know that. But you felt like that was the you know the easier out of the inning, so to speak, and uh, you attacked him. You attacked them because you didn't think they were going to do anything to you. Was there, was it really as simple as just going right at them? I mean, did you think about hitting corners at all? Did you think about mixing well, up I your pitches? I don't think I thought about hitting corners uh, with strike one, so to speak. Uh-huh. You know, you get ahead of somebody, then you're then you're trying to make a pitch and trying to uh-huh. make them chase or whatever. Do you remember giving up a bunch of home runs that year to pitchers, or are we picking uh, no, up? No, not memory? really. I, uh, I I think Jerry Kuzman hit one off me. Uh, he did. Tell me, yeah, yeah you'd he have did. to tell me who else. I don't remember offhand. I mean, my God, you're talking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that 50 years ago or 40 years ago? I don't know. Uh, do somewhere Almost. in between. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I d- yeah, I, I, I imagine it was a little bit different because in the 60s, pitchers were actually better hitters than they are now. So I, I, I don't know if, if it was that much different or if you guys still basically looked at the pitcher on the other side and said that's, you know, that should be an easy out. I think that's the way I approached it. Yeah. You gave up home runs that year to uh, Mudcat Grant, Larry, okay. Jast- Larry Jaster, Jim Maloney, Phil Necro, and then uh, Jerry Kuzman tied a game against you with a solo shot. Okay. <laughs> no, so I guess I, I, I guess it I wasn't that memorable. That. I didn't know that. Yeah. I always I wondered mainly. I mean, we wanted to call mainly because I wondered if there was any particular. I don't know uh, if if guys got on you, if your manager got on you, if you gave up a home run to the pitcher, if it was extra memorable, if if it was uh, if it was any different than you know giving one up to you know any other hitter. Um. I would say no. They probably were thinking, uh, they were thinking how'd they let, how'd he let that jerk hit one out, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I like to throw strikes. And I mean, if they, uh, guessed right and I put it where they were looking, uh, you know, they're going to hit it. 
Yeah. yeah. And can I ask you one more? I, I, in 1968, you know, there were 3.43 runs per game scored in the National League. And then just two years later, there were 4.52 runs scored. So, you know, over a, a run per game more scored per year just in that mm-hmm. two year span. And you were pitching in the NL in both of those years. So, what was the right. difference, of, you know, with your approach, at least? I mean, did you just feel like you really could just lay it in there when offense was down across the league? Did it change how you went about your job? I, no, I don't think it did. I mean, it's just like pitching in Wrigley Field. I didn't, uh, I didn't alter the way I pitched. Wrigley Field was a great place to pitch when the wind was blowing in, and it wasn't so much fun when the wind was blowing out. Right. And, uh, and I mean, the strike zone was changing dramatically a lot. They were, you know, expanding it or, or making it smaller. The mound was lower or higher, and, and you were a, a control guy, right. and you led right. the league with your walk rate in 1968. So I guess that mm-hmm. just made your job easier. You didn't have to be quite as precise because maybe there was a, a bigger target. I don't know about that. I just, um, like I said, that's probably why I gave up five home runs to pitchers. I was throwing strikes. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, and then I guess my last question is, uh, sure. did you like your nickname? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't bother me. I'm still uh, I'm still called that. Yeah. <laughs> Are you rooting for the Cubs? Are you still rooting Certainly. for the Cubs? Of so course. Pretty excited right now? Of course. I hope. I'm, I, I hope I'm not cursing them. Yeah, well, you were signed by the Giants, so I was wondering who you were rooting Originally, for in that yeah, series. yeah, but I mean, uh, I like the Giants. I mean, that was my childhood team when they were in New York, and, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to sign with them, and I do root for them, but I can't. My heart is with the Cubs and not the Giants. Well, you put in some time with some bad Cubs teams, although some of your Cubs teams were actually really good. So, um, but well, that, uh, that's six, yeah, that's six, that '69 club is one of the I don't know one of the harder seasons for a Cubs fan too. I imagine that that would have been a one that if if you met a Cubs fan 20 years later and he found out you were on the 1969 team, he probably flashes back to the Miracle Mets. Uh, probably does for most people. I mean, you got to remember something that in '68 we were formidable. And in 69, I really think we had the best team. And, you know, Cub fans had been starving for a number of years for any kind of a, an appearance in, a, in uh, you know, in the uh, after season, so to speak. And, uh, you know, we were, a, we were a big deal in Chicago in 69. And you were a huge part of that team. That was your best year. And by the, yes. you know, advanced stats that we have today, they say that you were the third most valuable pitcher in the National League that year. But, but even... By, you know, the contemporary stats, I mean, you pitched 300 innings, you won 20 games, you had a ERA under two and a half. How did you not make an all-star team that year? <laughs> it seems like you, you really should have. Um, well, the story was that I believe, and I'm not sure I'm absolutely correct on this, but the story was that the opposing managers or, or the, the various managers in the league picked the pitchers. Ah, mm-hmm. And my understanding that year was that I had the same number of votes as a couple other guys and i think i think jenkins did too and i think neither one of us were picked because uh like a straw poll or something i don't i don't remember exactly what happened i have to say this there was a guy by the name of tommy mcdonald he played for the eagles back in the old days and he was an artist and he painted pictures of guys that made the all-star team and i still have that picture so I was on there, but I lost out in a straw vote or so of some type of thing. <laughs> You'd have to do a little homework on that. <laughs> we you might have, have all the stats and information on that. Yeah, yeah we might have to. What happened there? We might have to call Tommy McDonald next. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> all right. Well, Bill, thank you very much for your time and sure. uh, and if we ever find uh, another record that's uh, you know like uh, a little bit more fun to tell you about <laughs> okay well you can uh, you can you can look up my strikeout record too how's that <laughs> okay <laughs> All right, thanks bill thank you okay guys hey okay, bye see you okay so that worked out well we mentioned ned garver earlier in this episode our first pitcher cold call bill hands was our second so thank you to bill for playing along so we'll leave it there All right Okay, you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already done so. Carrie Breen, William123, Alex Farron, Jonathan Arkless, and Thomas Gifford. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I'll be sending out the information about Friday's Patreon supporter simulcast in the next day or so, so keep an eye out for that. You can buy our book, The Only Rules It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Go to the website at theonlyrulesithastowork.com for more information, and please consider leaving us a review 
review on Amazon and Goodreads if you like it. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can email me and Sam at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. I know we didn't get too much playoff talk today. If you want some of that, Michael Bauman and I did a bunch on an episode of the Ringer MLB show earlier this week, so you can check that out. And Sam and I will talk to you soon. Hey!